Hi, I'm Lucas. And I'm Brian. And this is the Quacks Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. I have got a Thanksgiving treat for you with a special interview that I am so privileged to have on. His name is Eric Maddox, and he is an army interrogator. Now, the subject matter is a bit outside of what we normally talk about, but this interview was so interesting, I just had to post it. Now, fair warning, towards the end, we had some feedback on his mic, so uh, there are some popping noises, which I could not remove in editing. Enjoy. So I have the great pleasure today of interviewing Army Staff Sergeant Eric Maddox, who was and is... Uh, an interrogator who served in 2003 in Iraq, in Southeast Asia, and other places around the world. He has more than 2,700 interrogations under his belt, and an amazing story to tell us that is a bit off topic for this podcast, but you know, I think actually ties back into an aspect of health and wellness, and that we've rarely talked about it, but it's about listening and relationships and, and having healthy relationships. So, you know, Eric, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Lucas. So I know you're busy, uh, you don't have a ton of time, so let's dive into your story and maybe you could tell us how did it come about that you joined the military? Well, I had a kind of a calling. I had grew up in a very patriotic family, grew up in Oklahoma, wanted to uh, serve, so kind of had a calling right after I was about to graduate from the University of Oklahoma and wanted to be an enlisted infantrymen. So I enlisted in the infantry, spent three years initially as uh, a paratrooper with the 82nd Airborne Division, where I was able to go and graduate from ranger school and become a jump master and do all that cool um, kind of legwork. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Did uh, You know, I've heard guys who are, are para paratroopers and stuff usually end up uh, kind of getting bad knees. Did you ever have anything like that happen? I never did. Um, I felt like every time I jumped out of the airplane, you know, it was, it was fate, right? You never knew what was going to be the results when you hit the ground. But I also always have this idea that I was so nervous that, you know, you, you just, you, you clinch up and you, you, it's almost like having just a small little car wreck every time you hit the ground. But after a while, I, I really got used to it and started to enjoy it. And I really never had any problems. Wow. So you went into interrogation and I imagine no one really thinks to themselves, you know, when they get into the military, I want to be an interrogator. So how did that come about? Well, I never wanted to be an interrogator, Lucas. So that that's typical. I was in the infantry, like I said, and you start to learn what the military has to offer, especially the United States Army. And they have so many things. And one of the things that intrigued me was their foreign language program. So my unit, the 82nd, just spent four months in um, Panama, and I really was intrigued with Spanish and started to pick it up and, and realized that the United States Army has other languages. And I really wanted to challenge myself, and I, I – realized that Chinese would be impossible. So I took the test to see if I could learn Chinese. I passed and I re-enlisted to become a Chinese Mandarin linguist. But part of that is having an MOS, a military occupational specialty. And one of those was to be an interrogator. So they said, you know, interrogation school is really short and you'll never do them because this is the nineties, the most peaceful time in world history. So you'll be a Chinese Mandarin linguist. Don't worry. You'll never do an interrogation. So that's how I got <clears throat> into the world of interrogations. Wow. So what was the training like? For the interrogation training was eight weeks. It was basic questioning with um, a little bit of psychological um, training on how to break, as they call uh, prisoners, but really it was based on prisoners that were going to have uniforms on a battlefield. And you know, when nine eleven happened, we just we we didn't face that type of prisoner, so it was a little um, outdated the training from what I actually faced. Okay, so you know, fast forward to two thousand three and Iraq. Uh, you're a Chinese linguist interrogator. Um, and you're kind of being thrust into this different situation that you weren't really prepared for. What, what was that like? And can you kind of tell us what led up to that? So 2003, the United States went to war in Iraq. The goal was to track down Saddam. 
we typically would use the interrogators that had an Arabic background. By that point, we had already been in Afghanistan, so we were already taking some of the, you know, more uh, kind of Islamic-focused regional interrogators. And then by the time we go into Iraq, we'd take, we'd used and deployed all of our Arabic linguist interrogators. So they needed more and they started plucking from other languages. And I was kind of plucked because of my infantry background to go join a Delta force team. And it was a task force joint special operations command responsible for finding those people on the deck of cards. So when we invaded Iraq, the department of defense, they created that deck of playing cards. And because of my infantry background, they knew I could, you know, function with these teams a little bit better than maybe somebody who'd never been in the infantry. So I was not familiar with Iraq. I'd never been to an actual war zone before and was kind of thrown right into the mix. Gotcha. So where did you end up when they sent you over there? I was sent to Saddam Hussein's hometown of Tikrit, small 20,000 person town right in the middle of the Sunni Triangle. And I lived at this house with this Delta Force team. So you end up with a house and kind of living with some badass dudes. Um, what was that like? I mean, did you have to earn their respect? Well, it's interesting to earn the respect of a Delta Force team. The one thing you don't want to do when you get there is pretend you're one of them, act like you want to be one of them. You know, they're badasses and they don't need another badass um, because you're probably not one. So what I did is realize they they brought me there because my skill of an interrogator or what they needed was not what they do. So I, I realized stay in my lane, figure out how to get them the information, the intelligence they need. And whatever you do, don't pretend you're one of them. And I think hopefully... I did earn the respect, but I think the best way I did it is not try to jump into their mix. Just know who I was and be confident with what I could do and not pretend I was one of them. Okay. So you're, you're kind of in this house, you're with these, this Delta force. What you kind of mentioned it, but what is your job? Your job is to gather information and Intel from people that they capture or how does that work? (laughs) So that's a great question. If you're not familiar with the military, imagine you go into a war zone and you're kind of plopped down somewhere in the battlefield. And this war, there is no government per se. There's not a government military. There's not a chain of command of generals and soldiers. And the enemy doesn't wear uniforms. So you need information. And we don't have access to information because we can't freely move about the town. So your job is to gather information to tell your commander, here's who the bad guys are, here's why they function, here's their goals, here's their leaders. We really had, (coughs) excuse me, we had such little information, my commander needed to know what was going on in his zone of his, his area. So my initial role was to get prisoners from the local population that, that we had already captured that were supposedly working on the uh, with the insurgency, interview them to try to figure out what is going on. And I'm guessing these guys were not uh, very forthcoming with uh, the information that you would need. So they were not. And if you can imagine if somebody invaded your town and they captured you, and you went and sat down with them, would you feel that the information you provided them was going to be given them to help you or possibly hurt the things that are important to you? Bob, I I can answer that for you. (laughs) You would think, I don't trust this person who blew down my front door. So there was a, the problem is trust and there's a complete lack of trust and therefore why should they cooperate? So I realized they weren't going to cooperate at a minimum, they were going to give just enough information to be, give the perception of honesty with the hope that I would deem them innocent and get them to be released. But that that really wasn't helpful. I needed to truly gain their trust. 
And did the army, the way they taught you to do interrogations, did that do that or, or was it otherwise? So it was otherwise the, the way the army taught us was, you know, you're going to be on a battlefield. They're, they're going to have a uniform. They're going to be the enemy, right? So imagine German soldier, world war two, uh, Japanese pilot, world war two. Sure. So the debate is not whether or not the, on the other team. And the idea was that you really can't build trust with these individuals. So the hope is, you kill their spirit of wanting to fight with the other team and that through exhaustion and just mental um, fatigue, they will say, you know, I'm tired of all this. Here's everything I know. Be nice to me. And uh, maybe it works for other people. Been past wars. It did not work for me. And then I came to realize once I really looked at the way military interrogations were going around Iraq and Afghanistan, it didn't work for any other uh, army interrogators. Okay. And so how, how did you find that transition? I mean, did you start with the way the army taught you how and then kind of noticed over time that it wasn't working? Or did you kind of just like realize really quickly like, hey, this isn't working at all? Well, of course, when, you, when you're in the military, you receive training. You're told to trust the training. You believe it is useful. So I initially started with those uh, army interrogation tactics. And I, I, I need to first say army does not teach torture. Army does not condone torture with interrogations. Prisoners were tortured. That was not part of the training strategy. That was just some rogue interrogators who were getting a little bit of uh, support from their leadership that said, Hey, make these guys talk, do whatever it takes. There was no training program for that. I trained on nonviolent yet zero sum game intimidation tactics, but it didn't take, you know, you said over time, Lucas, it takes about three days to figure out this is stupid and it does not work. So I quickly realized I'm not going to waste my time. And more importantly, I'm not going to waste this team's time expecting me to produce results when this is not going to work. And so I, I just tried to immediately go, wait a second. If I'm in the shoes, if I'm in that situation of these prisoners, what would get me to talk? Yeah. So you, you mentioned this and I've seen it on your website too, that you say torture actually doesn't work. Uh, you've never tortured anyone. Can you just expand on why it doesn't work? It's sort of imagine that humans are not stupid. And if you're sitting there and they say, give me information, your initial thought is going to say no, or I'm going to lie. And then if someone beats you and then you give them what they want, well, they're going to want more. So if a prisoner gives an interrogator some information because they were beaten or tortured and they give them some, well, eventually the, 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 the interrogator is going to say, wow, that worked. Let's do that even more intensely. Let, let's, let's really get the good stuff. So you're going to squeeze a little harder. Well, it doesn't take a genius to figure this out. Hmm. Therefore, it, a prisoner realizes Even if I give information on torture, it is a stupid move because this is only going to get worse. At no point does does our mind in in mapping out this process go, okay, I'm going to give this information and then they're going to be nice to me. No, because probably the interrogator started off being nice. I didn't give the information. They torture me. I did. Why would they go back to nice? They're just going to torture you worse and worse. And all the people that you give them as a prisoner, what do you think they're going to do to them? Well, they tortured me. They're going to torture them. So they will, they will, they will stop. The buck will stop there and they'll just take it. They'll, they'd rather be killed. Wow. So it's almost the opposite of what you'd see on TV where, you know, you'd say something to stop the torture. It's, it's like the opposite of that. So that brings up another interesting point that everything you see with regards to interrogations and torture on TV usually has to do with one piece of information. Where is the bomb? Where is the, where's the ticking time bomb? Right. You know, so that makes good TV. The problem is in this type of war, we didn't know 
if there was a bomb. We didn't know where the bomb was. We didn't know who the bomber was. And we certainly didn't realize or know whether or not, if there's one bomb, why are there not two and three and four? So we didn't know, even if we did go to a prisoner, so we just need this one piece of information. We didn't know what to ask. And so in that type of collection environment, we needed to gain the trust of the prisoners enough to say, we don't know what we know. What we, we don't know what we don't know. We need you to tell us, right? We, they have to paint an entire picture for us. And if you think you're getting an entire picture painted from a prisoner through torture, you, you don't understand interrogations. So probably most people listening have no idea how an interrogation works. How, how do they work? Can you break that down for us? Sure. Uh, first of all, I would say interrogations take places at different times. So imagine the moment a prisoner's captured, typically at, at outside of, of a prison, you know, maybe at their house or on a battlefield or in their vehicle somewhere, interrogations begin the moment they're captured. So you do interrogations on the spot. But then what you would sort of imagine in the audience, your audiences imagine once we get them back to a, a jail, a, a, a controlled environment, into a room, you set them down, you take off their handcuffs and hood, and, and then you begin that conversation. Well, the conversation for me begins with, they do not trust me at all. They understand that nothing, they don't want to say anything because they believe anything they say will be used against them, right? So what I do is I try to create a level of hope. I try to get them to understand if they do nothing, it is beyond my power to help them. If they help me or if they at least communicate with me, my goal is to get them home free and without ramification of giving information as soon and guaranteed as possible. So my goal is to flip their mindset of thinking, whatever you do, don't talk to this guy, to the only way to get out of this problem is to talk to this guy. So really, I started an interrogation off by assuming they think I'm bad, and I just try not to be their friend immediately. I try to come across as the bad guy, right? Like, you're a terrorist. What are you doing here? Um because I want to play that role because I need them to, if, if I, if I imagine Lucas, if I sat down with the prisoner and said, I love you, man, <laughs> I want to be your friend. Well, they're not going to believe me. So I need them to use their social skills to appear as though they reshape my opinion of them. So I come in with an opinion that I don't like them. And I give them the opportunity to say, whoa, whoa, no, you got to trust. I haven't done anything. And I, I kind of go, wait a second. If you haven't done anything, then you would be honest with me. Well, I will be honest with you, Mr. Okay, if you're going to be honest with me, I'll make a deal. If you don't tell me a single lie, I'll let you walk out this door. You're a free man. But if you lie to me, you don't go anywhere. And I shape, I reshape the, 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 the judgment from what you did out there, whether you committed a crime or made an attack against Americans, to in here – we're going to play a game of chess and the game of chess is you tell me the truth. You're free. You tell me a lie, you stay. And uh, <clears throat> because of the way I listen with such intensity and empathy, I truly can't tell when a prisoner lies. Like I, and not only that, I can tell you what they lied. So when I reveal those lies, it reshapes the game for them. That's how I begin interrogations. Okay. So let's, you know, I'm sure you've told the story a thousand times, but let's get into the, your actual story. Um, in Iraq, you're, you're in the house with Delta Force. Uh, what is your mission and, you know, how do you start? So my mission simply is to help this team of eight guys get information that makes their job easier in this war zone. Well, their ultimate goal is to capture Saddam. So initially, they didn't think Saddam was in this town. They were just kind of stuck in this town because it was Saddam's hometown and there were teams all over the country. So I was just with this 
team who thought no one was there. So my initial job was to get them information about the people who were attacking us. So on a daily basis, I would do interrogations and just try to find leads to the locations of low-level bad guys. Well, once we started capturing a few of them, and the commander realized when we did capture them, I could gain their trust, get them to really open up and take us to the next level. Then the commander saw, wow, Eric, we can really build kind of a, a, a social network of, of this insurgent bad group of people. So we spent the first few months just building out the social network of, of the insurgency in Saddam's hometown until the point we realized it has a leadership and at the top is one man who's taking orders from Saddam. So you're, you're basically building out this network of contacts, this family uh, that you're looking at. At what point do you start to realize that there's more here that, that, you know, this, that you're not just in a place where there's no viable targets? So that's a great question. In early November, we were realizing that there was one particular Iraqi Tikrit, from Tikrit family called the Al-Muslit family. And they had multiple brothers and cousins, all about 50 years old, that seemed to be really involved in this insurgency. And I was talking to one of the children, so it was probably a 24, 25-year-old, about his dad, his uncles, his uncle's cousins. And then I was talking about the generation that was his age, the, the their children. And he started talking about the kids, and he said, yeah, I'm friends with my cousin here, and I see this cousin a lot. And then he talked about this one uncle's children. He says, no, I don't hang out with them. I said, why? He goes, I, 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 couldn't, I could never actually talk to him. Like, what are you talking about? Hmm. He's like, man, you, you just don't understand. I was like, what are you talking about? How old is your cousin? And he said, well, he's three years younger than me. So he's like 20. So what do you mean you couldn't talk to him? He goes, you, you just don't get it. My dad can't even speak with his own brother. And at that point, understand how these families work. That's not possible. That doesn't happen unless that brother is directly linked with Saddam. And it was at that point that I realized, oh, these brothers aren't at an equal level. They work for their own sibling or their own cousin. And that sibling has the power of Saddam Hussein. That's the only way that sort of family dynamic can roll out that way. So at that point, it was like, we're not going after this family. We're going after this one guy. And this one guy has power he should not have. So it was that, it was that simple. Interesting. What, what was that guy's name? His name was Muhammad Ibrahim Omar al-Muslim. And Muhammad Ibrahim was a former inner circle bodyguard, a Hamaya is what they call it, of Saddam Hussein. <clears throat> so at that point, all efforts came to track down this Muhammad Ibrahim. And how long did it take you guys to get to the point where you figured out, like, this is the guy you have to find? I had uh, arrived in Tikrit in, in the end of July. So August, September, October, about three months. Gotcha. So you're until we realize this is the one. This is the guy. Gotcha. So and and during this time, you're going out with this Delta team. Uh, you're you're making raids, or, or what's going on with the Delta team during this three months leading up to that? So in order to get information, if I get information from a prisoner, the if the prisoner says, "Okay, well, this bad guy that I know of." He lives at this house. Well, then that night, the Delta team would go on the raid to capture the, that individual. Half the time I would go with them, depending on if the prisoner needed to show me exactly the spot. Or if the Delta Force team says, I know we got this. We don't need Eric or the prisoner to go. I wouldn't go. But either case, they would bring back the prisoners from the house, and I would start the process all over again. So it was every night, every other night, every few nights— Raid prisoners, interrogations. Raid prisoners, interrogations. I mean, it was a, it was an ongoing. Yeah, that that sounds like a lot. So, so you get to this idea that it's Muhammad Ibrahim, that this is the guy. What happens from then? What what happens when all of your guys's efforts go to capturing 
and, and interrogating this guy? So at this point, we really, as a team, decided we were going to focus on Muhammad Ibrahim. So we no longer were going after members of his family or any, any other insurgent fighters. We weren't putting our efforts because we were just, it was just one team. Every raid was to find a, another step closer or a closer friend, associate, business partner of Muhammad Ibrahim. The problem is nobody in the country, our government, the United States military thought Saddam Hussein was in this town. So we do this plan through the month of November. And as December approaches, my tour is up. I'm I'm just, I'm out of time. And as that time began to run down, my Delta Force commander, his name was Bam Bam, said, Eric, we, we've got to throw everything we have to capture this guy. So the last week I was there, which was the second week of December, every raid we're doing is like we threw every lead, every raid, every effort to try to find Muhammad Ibrahim. And we could not find him. And we did our last raid in Tikrit, thought we were going to get him. He wasn't there. So at this point, Bam Bam's like, Eric, you think Saddam's here. Nobody else does. You're going back to Baghdad before you leave the country. Take all these prisoners. See if you can get the next lead. We, we don't know where else to go. So I took all the prisoners with me to Baghdad on my way out the door. And while I was down there, one of the prisoners gave us the next lead. But this time it was in Baghdad, like the, the target. And it made me look kind of stupid. It's like, Eric your leads seem to be wherever you are. <laughs> like we could have you stationed in Canada right now and you're <laughs> going to tell us to go to Canada. Well, coincidentally, Muhammad Ibrahim had worried that we were getting so close to him that he fled to Baghdad. And my last day in the country, my next lead was in Baghdad and it was to his location. And we captured him on my last day in the country in Baghdad, we captured the bodyguard Muhammad Ibrahim. And so, yeah, can you tell us about because that I, you know, reading in your book that is so uh, gripping. Can you tell us about uh, realizing that you guys have him, and then your conversation with him? Sure. So when I'm in Baghdad, I don't, I can't send, I can't ask my team in Crete to go on that raid. So I asked the Baghdad team. We well, can imagine the Baghdad team's really busy. They're going on five, six raids a night. They agreed to go on the raid, but they went. Nobody raised their hand and said, I'm Muhammad Ibrahim. Uh, We don't have any pictures or anything. So they just put all the prisoners in the truck, said, Eric, your guy's not here. We're bringing the the prisoners back to process through the prison. Well, my flight's leaving in five hours. I'm leaving the country. And I thought, well, I got a little bit of time. Brought the first prisoner, they said, owned the house there in Baghdad. And I realized this, that's, this guy's not from Baghdad. This prisoner's from Tikrit. And an hour into it, I realized, oh my goodness, this is the deputy on my huge social network diagram of my bodyguard. Wow, we were so close. And then he breaks and he says, hey, you, you guys actually captured Muhammad Ibrahim. He was sleeping next to me when, when the soldiers raided the house. They had to have captured him. So at that point, I go, oh, my gosh, they got him. They got my bodyguard. So now I have two hours left in country. I bring in the bodyguard, and I began my last interrogation. I mean, this is the guy, the one guy I thought could take us to Saddam. I've been trying to find him, and I found him on the last day. And I couldn't extend my stay because no one, everyone thought, like, we're not we're not going to extend somebody to try to track down Saddam in Tikrit. Saddam Hussein's not in this little town. We've been to every house. But after two hours, he finally broke and said, I know where he is and I will take you. So he breaks and says, I know where Saddam is, but are you gone or are you, you still there or are you on a plane? Uh, the problem is he breaks and imagine this. Lucas, at this point in December of 03, we have gone through hundreds and even thousands of raids of people that have said, I know where Saddam is. I know where Saddam is. He's never there. He's never there. 
So it's the equivalent at this point and go into your commander and say, my guy knows where a leprechaun is and there's going to be a pot of gold. And it's like, yeah, man, got it. Go get your flights. Lead. I'm like, <laughs> no, 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 but my leprechaun, this really knows where the pot of gold is. And they were like, sure, get on the plane. So all I could do is say, I know you don't believe me. Call Bam Bam. Tell him Muhammad Ibrahim's dying to take him to Saddam. They sent me to the plane. I left the country. The team, uh, those interrogators in Baghdad called Bam Bam, said that. Bam Bam said, hold on to him. Bam Bam and the entire Delta Force team jumped on a helicopter, flew to Baghdad, picked up Muhammad Ibrahim, took him back to our house. I'd been living for five months. And that team planned and executed the raid. And in to, to a little village just just south of Tikrit, they could not find Saddam. And Bam Bam goes to Muhammad Ibrahim, goes to the prisoner and says, where is he? And the prisoner grabbed Bam Bam and the team by the hand, walks him around the backside of the house and starts kicking at the dirt. And they realized he was trying to dig something up. They found a rope. They started digging. The rope was connected to a lid. They cleared it out, circled around it, lifted it up. And there he was. Wow. And so once they catch him, what happened? Because you're not there. You're flying somewhere. What happens to you? So when you're with this task force, it's a top secret joint special operations command task force. You don't go home. You you first have to go to Doha, Qatar. <clears throat> That's where the headquarters was. And you have to do a top secret de- outbriefing, out a debriefing. So the next morning I show up for my debriefing. They don't know who I am. They know everybody who's with this task force has to go through. And I'm. they're like, yeah, all briefings are canceled today. And they shut the door. I wasn't even allowed in the room. So I knocked on the door and I said, you know, I can't leave the country until I give this briefing. Uh, I'm the interrogator from Tikrit. And that caught the senior officer's attention. He pulled me in. He said, you're Eric Maddox. I was like, yeah. He pulled me in. He goes, all briefings are canceled because your guy took us to the spot. We got him. And that's how I found out. So from that point, my life completely changed. Um, I was sent to Washington, D.C., sent to the Pentagon, the Office of Secretary of Defense. I was pulled out of the Army. The DOD decided to create um, a a special team of interrogators under the Defense Intelligence Agency. It was a 30-man team. I was hired as the first-ever civilian interrogator on this 30-man team. And my initial task was to go around and teach this new interrogation technique, this new form of communication to build trust with prisoners in a short period of time. Um, I spent that next 10 years as that person, that, that, that role, I ended up doing a total of eight deployments, 2,700 interrogations. And one of my roles was to teach this interrogation technique. And so you, uh, you got a little gift, I believe from Saddam's hideout. What was that? Sure. So Bam Bam and the team, when they captured Saddam, uh, uh everything in Saddam's hole, there wasn't much. It was uh, $750,000 cash. That goes to the U.S. Army. There's a Glock pistol. That went to President Bush. And there was a box of Cuban cigars. Bam Bam and the team and I split the cigars. So I have a Cuban cigar from his hole. <laughs> That's great. So one thing uh, I noticed as I read through your book and, and listening to your podcast too, uh, stories from your podcast, it seems like you get results a lot of times from kind of lightly breaking the rules to get close to prisoners and, and to gain their trust. And, I, you know, I've heard the military can be pretty bureaucratic. What was that like? I mean, did you worry about getting in trouble? Um, uh, so explain to me, just so we're clear to your audience, yeah. which rules are you referring to me breaking? Just so I, I'm like, what? Yeah, sure. So, uh, for example, I know you had a story on your podcast about, uh, I think it was in Southeast Asia, a, a terrorist cell, and, and you gave a guy a phone when, when they weren't supposed yes. to have phones. Um, and just, just little things like that where, where you kind of go outside of what you're supposed to do to gain trust. 
thank you. Okay. So just so everyone knows, you know, I break rules on the other end of the spectrum versus the spectrum of control, violence, um, containment. You know, when people Ah. think interrogators break rules, they typically go, okay, they're too harsh. They're too, uh, they are physical. They, um, they want to gain control. My overarching philosophy is a prisoner, and I don't give a lot of people benefit of the doubt. A lot of times people are just smarter than me, and they know more about how to solve the problem than I do. So I try to release, and I try to take all constraints off my prisoners to allow them to use their mind their communications and their knowledge to solve the problem. So I would, I've oftentimes released prisoners and made them informants. I let prisoners talk to each other. That's taboo in the military form of working prisoners. You you've never let prisoners see each other or talk. Shoot. I let them live, live in the same cell or let them work on a strategy together. Um, I release prisoners early. Um, I, I, as you mentioned in that one podcast, one of the deadliest, most dangerous prisoners we'd ever captured in the Philippines. Why well, just gave him a cell phone and he kept it in his, in his, in his cell? Oh, you can't do that. Oh my goodness. And it's like, listen, what, what are you doing? Are you punishing the prisoner? That's if you're punishing, then that's somebody else's job. My job is to use all the resources of this prisoner to gather information to help my leaders make better decisions. And if I can't use the resources, which are my prisoners' brains, their uh, their relationships, their contacts, then you're not really allowing me to do my job. And I know my commanders want me to do my job. So if some of the stupid bureaucracy is going to hold me back, I just disregard it. And I'm sure there can be some ramifications to that, but uh, I don't care. Whatever. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like one of those situations where the results kind of sweep sweep away any uh, objections that might be had. Yeah, you can say that. <laughs> but in reality, they don't. Because in that case, if somebody in my position says... Well, I believe the best way to use the resources is to torture them. Then they can say, you know, I don't care that they say don't torture. I'm going to torture anyway because the results sweep away. Ah. Uh, and, and so you have to understand when you when you do things that are against what are being told to you, you have to accept the consequences. So just because Saddam was captured or, the, the, you know, that the South, that prisoner in Southeast Asia provided great intel. I do accept that if somebody says, you can't do that, man, you're done. You're, you're in trouble. Whatever book we want to throw at you, we're going to, you still have to accept that those are the consequences. It's just, I deem the way to release the talents and the resources of a prisoner is not by gaining an overbearing control it's actually like removing your control over them and allowing them to to use their own resources, which is typically their mind, to solve the problem. I, I don't think a lot of people would do what you do. I don't think they would go outside the rules in, in the way you are, you know, in uh, you know, the more less control way. I, I don't think many people would do that. What do you I mean, has that been some, has that been kind of a part of you? Because I think most people would just be like, no, I'm just going to follow the rules. I'm going to keep my head down, keep my job and, you know, the results be damned. Is that, is that kind of like just a part of you? I don't know what I'm trying to ask, but is, is, have you always been like that? Okay. So I'll tell you the part of me that seems to differ. <clears throat> and that is the part that ever says there seems to be a tendency with people that if they grew up or they they're introduced to something and this is the way it's done, it's always the way it's done that they go, okay, well then that's the way I have to do it. And for me, I just look at things and go, 
but it doesn't work very well. Well, it's always the way it's done. I know, but don't you think it doesn't work very well? But this is the way it's always done. Okay, I'm not going to listen to that anymore. I don't care that it's the way that's always been done. So I naturally would say, nope, I'm, I'm going to go find the better way because I know what you're trying to do. It's just your way doesn't work very well. Well, then what I realized is to really make a change, you have to get buy-in from the leaders, the the decision makers, the authority. So now what I do is I say, okay, this doesn't work. I can't just go change it. I go, why doesn't it work? And the reason the techniques that the army taught didn't work where I was, was because the battlefield had changed. The environment had changed. So instead of saying, um, okay, do it differently. I had to say, wait, well, there are no uniforms. There's no, there's no battlefield. There's no smoking gun. There's no chain of command. Your techniques were built to succeed in that sort of environment. This environment's changed. And when I can explain that to the authority, the leadership, then it makes more sense and you can get buy-in. So really the challenge is not just go, wait, this doesn't work. I'm doing it differently. You have to research and say, why doesn't it work? And then I can explain it to the decision makers. So then there's a smoother path to making wholesale changes. So let's talk a bit about uh, something that you developed from interrogation, I believe, and, and you call it empathy-based listening. Um, so let's just get into that. What What is that? Empathy-based listening is a communication style in which during a verbal conversation, your objective is to seek to better understand the perspective of the person that you're talking to with regards to the topic of conversation at that moment in time. Now, you're like, all right, what does that mean? Well, the only way to really look at something is to compare it to the standard way that people communicate. Most of the time when people are in verbal conversations, they're talking with the goal to create an influence on their perspective to gain influence by persuasion or to gather information that better fulfills their ability to achieve their goals or agenda. That is a very selfish minded, which is typical of most people during conversations. And what I realized is if you have a conversation not to achieve your own goals or to give persuasion on your objectives and your biases of the world, when you have that type of conversation, there's a limited amount of trust of the person that you're talking to. But if you try to achieve understanding, there's a natural tendency from the person you're talking to to want to be around you because people want to be heard and understood. And so you notice this in, in interrogations, basically that if you went in with a goal, you did less well as when you just tried to understand them. Is that what I'm kind of hearing? Well, what you're hearing is I didn't realize I was, I didn't realize what this was. I just started to realize over now, this was over a period of time as I'm doing these interrogations it came down to gaining trust. I've got to get the prisoners to trust me. And it didn't matter how much I tried to persuade the prisoners of how much I knew or how much my cause was right. It doesn't, it didn't gain their trust. What did gain their trust is when I sat and I listened to them trying to understand why are you doing this? What is your, what are the goals? Oh, and the main way that I gain trust of a prisoner is when they tried to explain to me, Eric, if I help you, look how much trouble I'm going to get in. The people are going to find out. The enemy will find out. And so my whole way of gaining trust was to say, okay, how can you help me? And nobody finds out. As a matter of fact, how can we help me and it help your situation? And all of our interviews, my interrogations, were built around getting someone 
out of this predicament of being captured. And when they are released, there no longer be further ramifications. That was the fundamental premise of my conversations. When you do it from that angle, imagine how much a prisoner is looking at you going, man, I don't even know what you're looking for except to help me. This is amazing. You're awesome. Can I bring my brother in? Because he's in trouble too, and you can help him. And so prisoners were like, listen, my brothers, my cousins, they're, my, they're involved. I need you to go capture them first. Because when they get with you, you're going to help get out of this thing. And did imagine? Yeah. And and did um, did they actually get help? <laughs> yeah i I have released. I'm going to say 98 percent of every single prisoner that has cooperated with me, released and protected. Now I've done 2,700 interrogations. That's a lot of releasing, right? Yeah. And, and the beautiful thing is people say, oh, I don't think that's true. Why would the government release terrorists and prisoners? Well, anybody who understands in a war zone, one of the biggest problems we have is that um, our prisons are too crowded. We're loaded up. It, we bring in prisoners and the prison guards are like, I don't know where we're going to put these guys. We're, we're, we're bogged down. So for me to create a strategy that not only gained cooperation, but also reduce the population of our prisons, that will work. Because I can't go to a commander and say, I want to release a bunch of bad guys. But what I can do is say, listen, I've converted these bad guys to people we can trust. And I only want those guys to be released so that we can have more room for the actual bad guys. Now that is an idea they can get behind. Yeah. So... So the empathy-based listening, how can people use it? How do they how do they do it? Well, the 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 first idea or the, the beginning is to understand that most of us are bad listeners. We only listen to 25% of what we hear. We only listen to 25% because we have all these mental distractions in our mind. So you have to understand what are the mental distractions. And you have to realize that most of those mental distractions are um our selfishness to seek and achieve our own our own goals. So what you really have to do is say, I'm going to transform the way that I the purpose of I of my conversations from influencing through my ideas to gaining trust by seeking to understand. And it is a paradigm shift in the purpose of a conversation. Okay. And so what, uh, if, if people start using it, what can they expect um, from the results of using it? The world will look at them differently. I, 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 I don't know what else to say that, that because it would be minimizing the effect. But if you communicate with empathy-based listening, the world, the people that you talk to will be drawn to, to, towards you. They will be attracted towards you. They will want to be in your presence. They will seek to build partnerships. Um, your prospects will become clients and your clients will become advocates because people want to be associated around people that want to help them succeed. If you look at relationships, Relationships, business relationships, personal relationships, the biggest thing someone wants is they want to be understood. And when they're in a relationship and they're like, wait a second, I wish you understood me. Well, imagine being in a relationship and the person that you're with, their exclusive purpose in any time you talk to them is seeking to understand you. That, that it's, the, it's, this, it's the great social gravity is when you're seeking to understand somebody, they are drawn towards you. Wow. And, and how do people get better at it? Well, personally, I mean, if you, if you're involved, if, if you have any association with me, I train on it. I teach on it. My podcast creating influence. Well, that creation of influence is, 
influence through, created through empathy-based listening, removing distractions. If you want information about empathy-based listening and kind of those distractions, kind of a little 30-day self-help, you know, you can reach out to me. You can shoot me an email at info at ericmaddox.com and say, I want those distractions. Um, that is what my company does. I give keynote speeches on tracking down Saddam and the impact of empathy-based listening. And we do corporate trainings to train workforces to understand and implement this empathy-based listening, which then transforms a culture into a service culture. It creates a workforce that wants to stay put under their leadership, and it creates clients and prospects who want to continue to um, solidify and grow the relationship with you know, sales forces that use empathy-based listening. That's awesome, Eric. So where can people find you? Uh, what was your podcast called one more time? My podcast is Creating Influence by Eric Maddox. They can reach me. Go check out my website, which is ericmaddox.com. Or they can like my Facebook page, of Eric B, as in Bravo Maddox, Eric B Maddox Facebook page, and I try to I try to bring value content out there to continually give um, ideas and wisdom on how to improve and increase and and develop empathy based listening to build relationships. And Eric, you know, he also has an amazing book that I literally read in an afternoon. It was such a page turner. It's called Mission Blacklist Number One, The Inside Story of the Search for Saddam Hussein, as told by the soldier who masterminded his capture. So thank you so much, man, for coming on. I mean, I know you've told the story a thousand times, so I really appreciate you telling it one more time for uh, my audience. And, and thank you for your service. And uh, yeah, man, I really appreciate it. Me too, Lucas. I appreciate your time, buddy. So I hope you enjoyed this interview. I, you know, I never thought when I started this podcast, I would be interviewing guests like Eric. Now, one thing I forgot to mention in the interview was all the decorations that Eric has received for his service. Uh, he was awarded the DIA Director's Award, the Legion of Merit, the Bronze Star, and the National Intelligence Medal of Achievement, all for his key role in the capture of Saddam Hussein. Now, the way Eric and I met was through his podcast called Creating Influence. So if you do have a chance, I would go check it out. It's definitely interesting listening, and it will make you better at listening in your relationships uh, if you follow his advice. Now, I mentioned his book title in the interview, but one more time, it is Mission Blacklist Number 1 by Eric Maddox. You can get it on Amazon. I will have a link to it in the show notes. And like I said, it is a serious page turner. I think I got the book around noon and finished it that night. I, and I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. So it's, it's pretty good. Uh, if you get value out of these podcasts, please visit our website at quackspodcast.com and shop through our Amazon portal or just share it with your friends. Now, if you have any questions, you can shoot me an email at quackspodcast, that's with an X, at gmail.com. I hope you have a happy Thanksgiving, you know, filled with family and good food, and maybe practice a bit on this empathy-based listening, which Eric was teaching on. We all love to be understood, don't we? Be welcome.